you know New York, you need New York. You know you need unique New York. This is the intro. Hi, everybody. I'm Mark D, IT guy and genuinely awful hitter. I can't quantify why that is because I wasn't always a terrible hitter, but I could say that it's likely something about my vision and catching a fastball to the head. They may be unrelated, but then again, they may not be. That intro wasn't sent in by anyone. It was deeply personal, as is this movie, but in a different way. This is the originator of many things, many tropes, I guess, in sports movies and in actual sports themselves, amazingly enough. This is the 1989 David S. Ward written and directed sports comedy Major League. Harry Doyle here welcoming all of you to another season of Indians baseball. Here's a list of players we'll be inviting to camp. This guy here is dead. Cross him off then. We'd love for you to come to spring training for a shot at this year's club. By the way, you were with me last night. Who's this chick on top of me? We'd still like to take a look at you in our spring camp. Not sure I can make it by then. Who is that? Serrano. What's his religion? Voodoo. Hey, hey! Billy Mays Hayes here. Play like Maze, and I run like Hayes. How you doing? What the hell league you been playing in? California Penal. Don't you have any proven major league talent? Now I want to put together a team that'll help us relocate to Miami. You want us to lose? We've been losing. What I want is for us to finish dead last. This year, the Cleveland Indians have a multi-talented team. The first offering, just a bit outside. They're masters of the sacrifice. He's looking to sacrifice a live chicken. One old chicken, just like you said. The double play. Excuse me. I have a much better body than she does. Thank you for me, she really does. And the pickoff. Every time we win, we peel a section. Tom Berenger. Zipper on your skirt stuck. Use your imagination. Charlie Sheen. These things make me look ridiculous. Seeing's the most important thing, son. I don't think it's that important. Corbin Burnson. And Bob Euchre. Haywood swings and crushes one towards South America. Major League. That ball wouldn't have been out of a lot of parks. Name one. Yellowstone. <laughs> okay. So by the numbers, Major League was released April 7th, 1989 to an opening weekend of $8.8 million. It was doing over a million dollars a week until June. Domestic box is listed at $49 million on an estimated budget of $11 million for its 107-minute runtime. That is a runaway success. I can't find numbers on home video, but I had this on VHS, and I watched the hell out of it. I was also very young, so maybe that was inappropriate, but also maybe it was appropriate. Who knows? It's, it's baseball. My assumption is that this movie made a ton of money on home video. It's very clearly and very obviously a big-time baseball movie. 
And this is from somebody who's drinking what I like to call a World War II in that I am drinking a Warsteiner Dunkel and chasing it with a scotch. Oh, boy. And I had a Belgian beer earlier today, so I just got to catch them all. As to my initial reactions, I love this movie. This movie changed me. This movie informed my life. This movie told me what to do when I played it backwards. I had it on VHS from an early age, and in retrospect, I'd really have to evaluate that against my kids to determine when they may be ready for it. But it was baseball. It was, it was a baseball movie, and I was playing baseball, so it was just allowed. If you go back and listen to my episode on The Sandlot, there are some very specific examples on how baseball movies were the move back then. So it was also very normalized. The success of Major League in 1989 had that effect going forwards. It isn't particularly deep or nuanced in terms of emotional conflict, but it, like Dazed and Confused, captures something truthful about the game. The game is baseball. That's what we call it. Kevin Costner was even a movie called For the Love of the Game. I'm, I'm not making that up. And uh, no, I haven't seen it, but since I have invoked it, I guess I will need to at some point. And it does, this movie does channel that stupid and futile gestureness of Animal House as it is in a way its own Animal House, but with baseball montages instead of food fights in the cafeteria. The differences come from the focus of David S. Ward, the writer and director, and his personal relationship with baseball and very specifically with the Cleveland Indians. I'll take this opportunity here to point out that, yes, this movie came out in 1989, and the social landscape was different back then. The Cleveland Indians have since changed their team's name to the Guardians. A little-known fact about Cleveland is that it has these amazing Art Deco sculptures called the Guardians of Traffic. They're actually incredibly cool, but this change comes from, obviously, the name Indians, which is, it isn't accurate when referencing Native American or First Nation peoples, to further any insult that could have been commuted through using the term Indians. The mascot was uh, the caricature of Native Americans, that, that Chief Wahoo. And it is, there are other organizations that use some type of Native American or First Nation iconography, but they are are generally more serious and stoic in nature and not even remotely comparable to blackface caricatures. Chief Wahoo was. So it, it's a good change. It's a good change. The character Pedro Serrano is played by American actor Dennis Haysbert, and his accent is a, is a better version of Al Pacino's from Scarface. It's not that great, but whatever. I've heard some medium shit takes where they call this portrayal out-and-out out racists, but in growing up near Santeros and having come across the animal remains used in Santeria rituals, uh, the stuff with the chicken wasn't racist per se. 
and I, I very much don't think that it was a, a fried chicken joke because he's a black man. It's more that, that the other characters have little to no understanding of the religion. Uh, they would also not be able to source a live chicken. And this is likely a reference to Wade Boggs, the baseball player who would famously only eat chicken before a game. And hopefully they got some product placement money for it, you know? Santeria, by the way, is an Afro-Cuban religion that shares its roots with uh, other Afro-Caribbean traditions and has a blend of Catholicism, the West African pantheon, and a few dashes of French spiritism. There's also a less researched uh, Cuban voodoo, which is similar to the Haitian voodoo, and it it is mostly popular in the province Oriente. But that seems like a super specific religion versus uh santeria which was popular enough that it it managed to get a a really cleaned up pop song out of a punk band named after it that is uh it's still overplayed 30 years later i'm i'm sorry it i fucking i'm done with that song david s ward either knew this very specifically or or didn't and just said hey fuck it man Baseball players are superstitious, so here's some fucking type of voodoo because that's the most superstitious thing I can think of. And that seems to work in the frame of a really dumb 1989 comedy movie. Definitely not a 2000-level religious studies course. And they have uh, they handle it about as expected from a dumb 1989 comedy movie. The fuel there is an interpersonal conflict between... Serrano and uh, the ostensible Christian Eddie Harris, the junk ball pitcher. And Harris is a complete hypocrite. He's a garbage person. He's a cheater. He's a dick. He's a liar. And uh, he then tries to like put forth the idea that he's like praying before the games and doing all these things. It's, it's bullshit. I'm not an expert on any of these religions. I just, I know a little bit about this from growing up in proximity to the artifacts of the practice of of Santeria. Anyway, most of those traditions have seeped into the mainstream Cuban culture and uh, tokens of it have been very normalized to ward off bad spirits or bad luck. I even had some small indicators and some small practices of this in my own house growing up. It's shitty that the movie uses a shallow take on a religion to manifest the archetype of the superstitious baseball player, which is 100% true, I might add. Baseball players are omega superstitious, and there are a lot of psychological reasons as to why that might be. But when you take it to a hyperbolic extent, it's also the obvious way to get there, and it's lazy. But we also talk about the church of baseball, among other things. American culture definitely has infused baseball with mysticism in many ways maybe this was ground just better left untrodden but this is also a movie full of extremely exaggerated characters in every direction right so calling it out for a shit take on this character absolutely i would like to point out that it's a reasonable assumption that in the focus groups for this movie there were likely incredibly few black Caribbean practitioners of any form of voodoo or Santeria or any related religions. There were likely even less of those people 
in the executive suites for the studios or on the production team of this movie. If you even remove the requirement of being a practitioner of any of those religions and just focus on being black or not even and, but or from the Caribbean, the numbers are still very small. True today, but even more so in 1989. So they try to, to balance it out with Harris. Harris is a complete hypocrite, right? And he's intolerant and in the whole nine. These then become the stereotypes of generic uh, Christians and kind of fucking mood, right? But to think what they would have done to Harris if Harris was Catholic, ooh boy, it would have been, uh, it would have been the, the Post? Was it the Post? No, it wasn't the Post. Um, uh, spotlight. It would have been Spotlight. But then there would have, have been some conflict as Serrano, who uh, showed up wearing a cross, was potentially also Catholic, as that is not uncommon for people of the Vodou religion or even Santeria, which is a blend of Catholicism and that kind of, uh, of Vodou influence, right? I think ultimately... Serrano's representation didn't open any doors, but it was a very obvious comedy ploy versus that of Tony Montana in Scarface, which was uh, ostensibly a dramatic and tragic portrayal of Cuban immigrants, very specifically, again, very specifically Cuban immigrants. But in a, in a movie where Serrano is the only Hispanic character, uh, you know, he, he could have been framed a little differently to communicate that he obviously was a pastiche of, of several Hispanic ballplayers turned to 14 to fill in one of the broadest characterizations in a film that starts with, uh, you know, his, his character starts with, yes, voodoo, no curveball. And it ends with kind of no voodoo, yes, curveball. Uh, to very simplify it. But there is progress. There is change a, a little bit of change but um but Harris ends up warming up uh in the, in the bullpen for the big game with with Jobu on the mound next to him you know uh so he goes from being intolerant to to tolerant or or even welcoming or, or participating so it's green book he he solved racism Re religionism prejudice against religions i guess cuz the fact that Serrano is black is more performative than, than factual in terms of, of how the movie goes. They don't really comment on that very specifically. And the fact that he's not a, a an African-American also changes that outlook a bit. And Serrano accepts that his religion doesn't make or break him with uh, the adage, uh, fuck you, Jobu. I do it without you. And he hits a curveball. He goes yard. It's still a bad look. Uh, th there's change. There's progress. It's not a great look. Uh, I don't think it was intentional, but a lot of times the unintentional has consequences. The, the, the bad accent didn't offend me. The character didn't offend me that much. I'm not very offended by Serrano, but in an analytical viewing, I'm like, oh, yeah, I see how this could be an issue, right? I see how someone might treat me differently thinking that I'm like this character. So yeah, I get that. And I've, I've talked myself kind of in and out of it a couple times. I'm not, I'm not 
100% one way or the other. I'm very much in the middle on, on this subject, but I think it, it bears some examination. It deserves it. You know, I think ultimately he is a, a Cuban immigrant who sought asylum as a voodoo practitioner, and they play all of that top to bottom for a laugh. And it's more for the laugh than for being a person or or representative of people, as he was ostensibly the sole representative of the Hispanic or Caribbean baseball player, of which there are not a, a small amount of, of, of them. Again, it's a dumb, dumb 80s comedy with a, a relatively large cast of major characters. So one could say that it would be expected to be this way, that it could never be any other way. And you, you can make up your mind on the however you want. He, uh, listen, Pedro Serrano, he goes yard in the big game. Like, spoiler, fucking spoiler. He goes yard in the big game and he carries the bat with him around the bases. Uh, based on the rules as written, you cannot fucking do that. He would have been called out. But as Harrison Ford told Mark Hamill on the set of Star Wars, it ain't that kind of movie, kid. And I, I don't know why he talks like this, but Mark Hamill's impression of Harrison Ford is really good. And the way that Harrison Ford as a person talks versus his characters is so different. It is fascinating. Actors fascinate me in so many ways. It ain't that kind of movie, kid. It's, it's kind of more like, like, get the fuck out of my house. Like when David Blaine shows up, you know, that kind of mumbly, like, uh, anyway. You make up your mind on it, you know, how accurate this movie was going to be from the outset was very little. We all know this. Any reasonable human understands this as they watch the movie for all things that we can talk about. It's going to be the same vibe. It's going to be uh, very dramatized for the purpose of, of comedy and for expediency, brevity, clarity, and all of those things above without a whole lot of consideration for sensitivity to any groups who, who, who may have received negative impact from it because homie in 89, we didn't think that way. That is not how we thought following that the new team owner, ex showgirl, Rachel Phelps, who inherited it from her recently deceased husband is characterized as being extravagantly wealthy and a completely awful person. She is actually the primary antagonist of the movie and sexualizes and objectifies some of the men who are objectively her employees. They in turn objectify her with a cutout that overtly sexualizes and depersonalizes her in a bid to fuel the spite that motivates the team to win. This style of narrative, this, this kind of idea does not feel like it was terribly uncommon in the 80s. Probably well into the 90s, this would have been okay and fine. The very, very interesting thing about the situation and this movie and this time period is that the original shooting script called for Rachel to actually be a tremendous fan of the team who took desperate measures to get the team to bond and unite against her. To get them winning again and improve attendance and also improve the team's ruined financial status. The test audiences 
strongly dislike this turn or twist. So it was excised and replaced with reshoots of Rachel Phelps's dialogue over the later part of the movie on a soundstage in London, as the wonderful Margaret Whitten was in a theater production in London after rapping on Major League. So outside of the shooting schedule, they went and they redid all her ending stuff. The, the script and the initial intention was to attempt to redeem this character somewhat, at the very least. But the audience was not feeling it. I found that really fascinating. It's not always the, the creators as individuals, or even the studios at, at times. Sometimes it's the actual test audiences that can sway the course of a movie in some potentially meaningful ways. Another thing that has raised some flags for me, however, many years later, and I'd estimate that I first saw Major League around 1991 or 1992 on home video, is that Jake Taylor is an American Wagyu stalker that is grade A premium creepy. He sees his ex, Lynn, in a restaurant and arranges for them to talk, where he then insists that she cannot leave without giving him her number. She wisely gives him a fake number. He finds her at her job. He follows her to her fiancé's home, where he walks in on a dinner party. He follows her to her actual house. This is a lot. This is just red flags central. And it's it's peak male, uh, take what you want and, and wear her down attitude, which is, it's frankly toxic as fuck. I'm sure there are 20 more things to point out and analyze, but these were the major ones. They are in many ways markers of the times. They they didn't get past me. I, I noticed them. I understand them now. But it's also not like we can go back in time and do rewrites and reshoots. I think the the moral of this story is just be aware and understand. That's kind of what I'm saying. But anyway, let's talk about David S. Ward. Writer and director David S. Ward is a Cleveland native and longtime Cleveland Indians fan. The Indians were fucking terrible. There is no easy way to say it. The Milwaukee Brewers weren't good either. The, the Midwest was starved for good teams, and it, it just starved for things in general. So it was less expensive to film the big stadium scenes in Milwaukee. So only a, a couple of things were filmed in Cleveland. And I'll preface everything following with a, with a few data points. David S. Ward wrote the Robert Redford and Paul Newman starring movie The Sting. If you aren't aware of The Sting, it was wildly successful. I've seen plenty of trailers for The Sting, but I've never brought myself to watch it. That may change in the near future. David S. Ward went to Pomona College, which is at the end of the Pomona Valley, which would or could ostensibly be the valley referenced in American Graffiti. When they say to John Milner, you've got the fastest car in the valley. The Indians were so bad that David S. Ward is quoted as saying, I figured the only way they were ever going to win anything in my lifetime was to do a, make a movie where they'd win. David S. Ward went on to direct Down Periscope, which is silly and sophomoric, and I, I really remember liking it. David S. Ward did not 
write Major League Two, but he did direct. It's it's a different movie. Ward captures baseball like only a real baseball fan can. David Mickey Evans from The Sandlot. And yeah, I have an episode on The Sandlot that will help fill in those, those gaps. Does something similar with the aforementioned Sandlot. It's about going past the surface and, and finding what connects people with the sport. This is something that could happen in every sport, but I don't feel it in every sport. So maybe it's just a me thing. But I feel like baseball is, is conducive to this. Baseball is a bit of a, a thinker sport, N- not even a tactician, although tactics matter, yes, but more, more a thinker. There's, there's time to think. There's time to, to marshal one's mental energies. And that's baseball. Ward he gets this, and I'm about it. Ward understands what a manager's job is. Ward understands what it what it feels like in the minor leagues. Always hoping for another shot at the show. Desperate and hungry. You know, Ward is, is the baseball fan with the depth to grasp both both to grasp both the big picture and the nuance. And he's the, the writer to balance them out. I know certain things were found on the day, and I get that. The idea of a, a perfect script prior to shooting is a bit of a myth. And while it's perfectly safe to say you're fully, you, you, you while it's perfectly safe to say you fully tested various scenarios and are prepared for them, it's perfectly safe to say that you thought about and, and foresaw various scenarios and you tested for them. And that's kind of an important thing as a filmmaker. You need to be flexible because the script does not reflect the reality of, of the film making process. So, you know, especially when it comes to film, not digital. This was the early 90s. Digital was hardly a thing. Jurassic Park was yet to come out. Uh, actually, it was 89, early 90s. I am so lost. I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, as as David S. Ward gets baseball, so does he beget baseball onto this movie. And there's a good amount of it. And there's a good amount of it. There's approximately zero CGI on this film whatsoever. Their money went to renting out stadiums and paying extras. You know, and again, in 1989, you couldn't even do the the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. So Peter Jackson and Jurassic Park were the two uh, big ones that popped everything off with, you know, the Frighteners and Lord of the Rings for Peter Jackson and ILM's Jurassic Park, right? So it's, it's factual. There is no trickery here. What you see is what you get. Ward talks about this often, but, but the cast in, in this movie, the actors and the extras have all kind of basically earned their place to be here. And through this, we will end up talking about both the actor and the character a little bit. This is definitely the part where spoilers might affect your viewing experience. So you've been warned. The main character of this movie must be Jake Taylor played by Tom Berenger, who is a beat-up old mule of a baseball player that they pull up from the Mexican leagues. 
Tom makes a good show of catching, but a lot of the throwing and hitting, it's not him. Uh, he, he was behind the plate a lot and he said that he ended up with some sciatic nerve pain on the film and Steve Yeager, the professional catcher who doubled him said, yeah, we all have that. It'll, it'll go away once you're done with the movie. Jake Taylor's whole thing isn't even that he's looking for redemption in the show, but that he's, he's a very bad partner in relationships and, and breaks up his ex's engagement with the, the, the main methodology of, of stalking her. When I was a kid, I thought his arc was a redemption arc, but I, I, I see now that it has some of the trappings of a redemption arc, like being a mentor to the rookies, but uh, none of the real payoff. He does do the most macho shit where he wins the game with an incredibly improbable ruse that results in him running faster than just about anyone, even with his well-established destroyed knees well past their expiration date, as opposed to smashing the 450-foot home run. That part plays a bit like a Western or, you know, even more specifically like a samurai movie, as that is where Westerns tend to come from. And the way that, that we hold baseball bats is is similar to one of the uh, Kenjutsu Kamei. And uh, I'm sure I massacred that. But think of that one shot of Qui-Gon Jinn from The Phantom Menace where he holds the, the lightsaber up to his head kind of like a baseball bat. It's a, it's a pitcher and a, and a batter. It's a, it's a showdown. You get one pitch and one swing at a time. If I haven't talked about baseball being the most cinematic sport, it is. But that's uh, that's kind of Jake Taylor's thing, I guess. He does uh, a smart thing and has been a nice guy for for most of the movie, but he's still a stalker who was womanizing an hour and 20 minutes ago. Did he really redeem himself to Lynn? No, I don't think so. But apparently he in, inspired something in her. Berenger is definitely one of the more experienced actors on the movie, but has the face of someone who has been through it all. He has a gravitas, and he sometimes uses it in this movie for humor. It's the contrast. When he super smugly says to all the rich people in the dinner party that he crashed, I make the league minimum. That's really great. This, the the gravitas, not the comedy, though, is is probably what got him the part as Sergeant Barnes in Platoon in 1986. Behringer's co-star in Platoon was Charlie Sheen, who is also playing the second main character, Rick Vaughn, a.k.a. Wild Thing, the pitcher that they apparently get released from jail, or they just had tabs on him and knew when he was getting out. I don't know. Again, it, it ain't that type of movie. Sheen shows a very credible pitching motion on the mound, and that comes from him apparently playing in high school. Rumor has it that his fastball was in the the mid to high 80s, according to some folks on the production, and I believe that more than a couple people felt that if he had devoted himself to baseball, he could have been a pitcher in the show. Years later, Sheen says that he took steroids to get his fastball up and that it caused him some emotional issues during production that got him into what I understand to be a couple of bar fights. 
he didn't really look like he was on steroids, but they did give me prednisone for a few days and it made me absolutely crazy. So if that's the case, I get it. He'd, uh, he'd just appeared in Eight Men Out, the movie dramatizing the 1919 World Series cheating scandal, which also has David Strait Theron, and had, uh, as mentioned, come off Platoon, which in my eyes was a, was a massive film that gave him some room to act, you know? Major League giving him room to act? Mm, not so much. But he does a fine job for the film. He's got the right physicality for it. Vaughn, in the archetypal and literal loose cannon slot, who, who throws gas and literally gets under control once someone cares enough to understand that he actually just doesn't see very well. And that's why he's always squinty and scowly. There's only two other characters who might be considered main. And the way that I'm deciding this is, uh, do you see this character outside of the baseball field or facilities? And they are Roger Dorn and Willie Mays Hayes. Roger Dorn is played by Corbin Burnson, who up until then was big for being on the popular dramatic series, L.A. Law. I didn't really watch that show when I was an actual child, but but I do absolutely love Burnson in the comedy procedural psych. He brings the exactly perfect amount of prima donna asshole to Roger Doran and even makes even makes these little choices like making him act so perfectly stiff and lifeless in the American Express commercial. Burnson was also a ball player and, and looks the part. He, he does a great job of making Dorn look like a lousy fielder, but the physicality, again, is there. Dorn is definitely the archetype of the guy with too high of an opinion of himself and a lot of money. He shows up in a Rolls Royce and uh, points out some bullshit clause in his contract that ragtag coach Lou Brown promptly throws on the ground in the middle of the field during spring training and pisses on. The last main character doesn't roll up in the Rolls Royce to spring training. He wasn't even invited. He is Willie Mays Hayes, played by a then-unknown Wesley Snipes, and he shows up in a Volkswagen Beetle with a Rolls Royce grill. He's dressed fairly snappy and is the archetype of the ball player from Ennoble Origins who has ambitions and aspirations for more. He gets in through determination and what appears to be incredible running speed. It's stated several times by David S. Ward that Snipes was a great athlete, and I may be misremembering here, but I think he was more of a gymnast. But David uh, Ward points out that he was not a fast runner by any stretch. They use slow motion judiciously in this movie to make these epic scenes of speed and power feel even more so. And the actors make it work through their performances. But the reality of the situation was less impressive. What's more impressive is that Snipes, who had apparently never touched a baseball, learned to hit and field during the production of the movie. There's a montage where Snipes is popping up foul balls repeatedly, and he hit all of those himself. The, the catch that he makes up against the wall, that was him too, even though it's not like somebody hit it from home plate. You know, they, they threw the ball up to him, but he did it. He's on the screen doing it. It's a, it's a great performance. 
he he's definitely a Ricky Henderson type. Uh, Ricky Henderson being one of the greatest, if not the greatest, base stealers to ever play the game. Hayes' confidence, if misplaced, and ambition, and he learns humility and teamwork. He's not going to go out as an uninvited rookie and hit a bunch of homers like the Willie Mays that he thinks he is. He's got to put the ball on the ground, and as Lou Brown says it, leg it out, right? Wonderful voice, Lou Brown. I'll I'll try it again later. It's widely known now, especially in a post-Moneyball world, that the main statistic for wins is actually having runners on base. So while this was perhaps instinctually true, especially for someone as mythically fast as Willie Mays Hayes, it is empirically true versus the old guard's uh, 40 home run metric. Lou Brown, played by James Gammon, is a gravelly voice of reason, wisdom, and practicality in this movie. He's a sage and scrappy coach from a triple-A team, the Mud Hens. And uh, to be clear, triple-A is the freshest faces and the veterans who are the most past their prime. So he's actually very accustomed to working with flawed players. And the selection of Brown as coach is actually what lets this ragtag band of terminally flawed players mesh together as a team that is capable of winning. The casting so far has been very, very good. But I think that James Gammon is the best cast of them all. When you see him answer the phone and the tire shop and the opening montage, his voice, appearance, and performance are just so perfect. He's got a weathered appearance, and I actually don't think that I've seen anything else that he's been in, except for the two major league movies, But he did play Teddy Roosevelt in an episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, and I can 100% see that being great. And I apologize if that's going to sound bad. I am not redoing it. So I talked a bit about Margaret Witten's character, the antagonistic Rachel Phelps already, so I'll skip over that and I'll go to Rene Russo's Lynn Wells. Lynn is a bookish type who seems to have gotten caught up with a boy of summer, and then upon discovering that he's awful, moved on to find a yuppie attorney who has an elevator that just opens up into his apartment. As a child, I found that fascinating. But also, that meant that just anyone could hit the button on the floor and show up in there. We have key cards now, so that just prevents the whole, whoops, I just walked into your yuppie party gag, but... Again, not that type of movie. Jake Taylor can just stalk her flawlessly and show up where he shows up to make the romance plot happen. I enjoy Rene Russo's performance, but I think that this was implanted to target another quadrant and get those focus group scores a little higher. Some sports movies or many sports movies have integral romance stories in them, but others bolt them on to titillate and stimulate teens and adults alike. I medium get the vibe that this was the case here, that they had the script 100% about baseball, ready to go, and then realized that no studio would buy this after what happened with Top Gun. So they went back and planted all of this in there.
Dennis Haysbert and Chelsea Ross play Serrano and Harris, which I talked about already, but they did so very well, uh, accents notwithstanding, and added a little sea story to the movie. Haysbert also played ball and has a, a great looking swing. There's also Stacy Carroll as Suzanne Dorn, and uh, she did a whole transformation when she seduces Vaughn, and that was a nice performance as well. Charlie Cyphers as Charlie Donovan is maybe one of the more perfect stooges that I've seen in film. We also see Neil Flynn in multiple appearances, uh, a speaking part, not named, but speaking. And he is a longshoreman in the montages of the fans, i.e. the Greek chorus of the film, both literally and symbolically. Neil Flynn is just a, a fantastic actor. But there is one person who, upon consideration, was an even better cast than James Gammon, but is maybe too on the nose because he actually, I mean, he was an actor, but in this movie, he's not really acting. This ex-ball player who, despite humble stats, hit a home run off Sandy Koufax and was given the moniker Mr. Baseball by Johnny Carson is none other than Bob Euchre, who began a broadcasting career for the Milwaukee Brewers after his retirement and was cast to play Harry Doyle, the broadcaster for the Cleveland Indians. Euchre is not a trained actor to my knowledge and was just simply gifted, especially for this role, not only by being a broadcaster and having that broadcaster swagger and, and meter, but by being so sharp and, and quick. He reminds me of a, a modern improviser in some ways. Doyle is the loudest of the Greek chorus and goes from irony to despair and kind of back again. He's accompanied by a silent sidekick, which provides some visual gags in the booth. He'd have been on Who's the Boss as himself, apparently, and uh, was in 118 episodes of Mr. Belvedere, which I fucking hardly remember. But I, I think that Euchre is the character that most sells this movie. For, for a more modern take on this character, you can look at Hank Azaria's Brockmire, which uh, was a funnier die short that I'll link in the bottom and was since developed for a series for IFC. And Brockmire's kind of a caricature of, of Bob Euchre and in, in, in a, a big blend of a lot of others, but turned up to like 15, like well past 11. Bob Euchre even has a, a spoken word clip CD and you can hear that on Spotify. It's, it's there, but the man is, is truly a legend. Major League... The movie, like baseball, is about details. I'd say it's one of the more joke-dense movies, barring some of the romance aspects, but it's never like set up, punchline, and take to the camera with a pause for laughs to breathe. The opposite. Many of the jokes are small, easy to miss, and rapid fire, but no less amusing, to me at least. That one part of, of Joe Boo on the bullpen mound warming up with Harris uh, in the big game was super quick. And honestly, I don't think I'd noticed it before. The American Express commercial is uh, joke after joke, and it, it's filmed like a commercial, so it's kind of like go, go, go. The equipment room gags, like the the Whirlpool with the outboard motor engine, th that stuff is all really great and, and generally go uncommented on, I think. There are also a great many quotable lines. I think about the I make the leak minimum line often. 
when Rachel Phelps is confronted with the fact that she put a deceased player on the call list for spring training, her delivery of, well, then cross him off, is iconic. Harris naming all of the substances he loads up the ball with and then telling Vaughn the rookie, one day you will too, is both ominous and just funny in a way that isn't laugh out loud, but it, it, it fired some neurons, you know? A lot of the characters' stories are paid off in montage, which, I mean, doesn't have that film school appeal, but upon reverse engineering this movie is probably necessary due to the, the volume of stories. By my count, there are six ballplayers plus screen time for Lynn, Rachel, and Lou, as well as moving to the 162-game season while illustrating... Wait. <clears throat> I'm sorry, spring training as well as a 162-game season while simultaneously, simultaneously illustrating change and making jokes. It's a lot. They cut some extended bits from this movie, and I can see that. You know, it, it moves. Keeping that rapid pace going. Keep the audiences engaged. Don't sit anywhere too long. Even though maybe some of the Lynn scenes get a little stale and leave a bad aftertaste. They did spend time, money, and effort into getting the actual baseball stuff to look good and real and honest. And yeah, there were doubles for the players at times. And yes, the extras were constantly changing due to scheduling issues with college and minor league players, but they did have more than a couple of real players and even more color for the games. Amusingly enough, Jeremy Piven was actually uh, filmed as a on-bench comic relief-like player that was supposed to be intercut in the games, but he was completely cut out from the movie because it, it detracted from the pacing. This cast had no shortage of, of future stars in it, but decisions were made in the service of the overall film. I guess it's just time to wrap up my thoughts on this movie. The fact that I loved it as a kid, and I still do, it's telling. I, I I still like it in many, many ways. There were a couple of things that caught me by surprise as I hadn't seen it in many years. But I think it still holds up. And I don't use the term holds up to imply that it falls on the right side of every social issue and more that we've discovered or acknowledged since the film was made as other people might use that term. I mean... Did I still find it funny, or was I still entertained by it? The Hollywood Nights was the one where I was like the most, this is not okay about, but I, I still like it somewhat. Also, it's just a, a bad movie. Like, it just, it sucks a, a bit as a movie itself, even though I can still watch it and have fun. Major League isn't Citizen Kane by a long shot, but it does definitely do the job. It's still a comedy that won't tax your brain too hard, and it, it tells a baseball story. I'm not going to come out on this podcast and claim Cleveland is the main character, because it isn't quite that. But the movie does a great job of that, um, that Vox Populi Greek chorus to mix and match metaphors, uh, you know, or to mix and match cultures, I guess, right? Uh, but one's still from the other. It's all the same. Anyway, um, but they, they went that chorus route, that Vox Populi route, to get 
the fictional Cleveland to weigh in on these fictional Cleveland Indians. It's good stuff. If you're a baseball fan, then I'd say it's a it's a must-watch if you're a baseball fan. It, this is a must-watch. If you like sports movies, you'll probably like this, but don't expect intense drama. It's a, it's a fuck-around comedy written and directed by a guy who has been a lifelong Indians fan. Think about it. Anyway, that's it for me. Everybody be nice. Take care of each other. Um, I'll, I'll see you next time. And in case you were wondering, yeah, it's, it's going to be a baseball movie because baseball is back. God, Mercedes, what did you do now? Mercedes make a fucking NFT? Oh, God, so stupid. Yeah, Mercedes has an NFT fucking wing for their car for the Miami Grand Prix. Piece of shit, man.